0: The following episode contains trigger warnings for the discussion of sexual abuse, rape, drug use, and addiction. Please proceed with caution. In 1996, New York magazine writer Daniel Mendelssohn published an article which addressed the cultural visibility and significance of gay and lesbian experiences. Provocatively titled When Did Gays Get So Straight? Mendelssohn states that the cultural imagination the way gay people distinguish themselves within a socio-cultural context had shifted from the exoticized gay margin to the normalised straight centre. At the heart of this statement is a social conflict which predates Mendelssohn's writings and has persisted into the 2020s, the debate surrounding queer assimilationism and sanitization. Within this debate, norms and practices, places and spaces, have been scrutinized for their presumed queerness and, by extension, incompatibility with heteronormative and cisnormative culture. Sometimes, these practices and spaces are benign. Sometimes, they are sites of radical self-expression, fraught with both risk and reward. One such site of contestation is the practice of chemsex. As a controversial topic in LGBTQ journalism, Today, our question on chemsex is this. What is the significance of this practice in UK queer society? And should we preserve facets of queer culture which risk the welfare of queer people? Welcome to episode 12 of Slash Queer. You're here with me, your host, Georgie Williams. If you haven't heard of chemsex before, you're not alone. It can be hard to define chemsex. Interestingly enough, The UK-based organisation Drugwise defines chemsex as "...a term used by gay or bisexual men to describe sex that occurs under the influence of drugs." The fact that this practice is, in this example, defined by the sexual orientation and gender of those involved, speaks to the assumptions made surrounding chemsex culture. First and foremost, One has to question whether heterosexual individuals are supposed to have another word for sex that occurs under the influence of drugs. If such a word exists for, predominantly, gay and bisexual men, what necessitated the creation of such a word? To what extent is it normalized or acceptable in the social circles of men who have sex with men? Chemsex is a controversial topic for obvious reasons. One of the motivating factors behind the decision to produce this episode was a fan of the podcast reaching out to us directly about chemsex, as something that had affected her directly. As a trans woman who has spent time in a rehabilitation centre as a consequence of her own chemsex experiences, her decision to bring this subject to the team was evidence enough that chemsex is a practice which has reached beyond the lifestyles of gay and bisexual men. The drugs most commonly associated with Chemsex in the UK are GHB, often referred to as G, crystal methamphetamine, cocaine and ketamine. At the centre of the drug abuse narrative present in the British mainstream media is a purported concern about the impact of illegal drug use on the country's National Health Service, or NHS. As years of socioeconomic inequality and austerity under a Conservative Party government have pushed this essential service to its limit, Many more right-leaning publications have propagated notions of more vulnerable groups abusing this healthcare system, from immigrants and refugees to drug users and addicts. This is one of the factors which reinforces the shaming of drug users in the UK, with a presumption that those who use said drugs make decisions which not only endanger themselves, but the medical resources available to others across the country. But to what extent is drug use a central component of chemsex culture? What are the risks involved? And what does queerness symbolise within the chemsex debate? So this is the interesting
1: thing about if you describe chemsex, say, as a social phenomenon or even, even the pathology narrative that would describe it as an addiction. I think it's kind of polyaddictive in, in, in an interesting way.
0: The voice you're listening to is that of Dr. Sebastian Baxter. Dr. Sebastian Baxter is a Manchester-based queer artist and activist. He holds a PhD in art and design, having conducted practice-led artistic research into place, space, and identity in post-Celtic Tiger Island. Dr. Baxter is active in the fields of visual anthropology, sexual health, and artistic research, and has a background in film, performance art, poetry, and prose. His work has been presented at a variety of academic conferences, independent cinemas, squats, social centers, and radical fringe gallery spaces. Dr. Sebastian describes himself as suspicious of the official art world. He currently heads up the transgressive queer artistic research space Manchester Penetrated, a project that employs video, photography, poetry, performance, storytelling, and sex maps, amongst other things, to challenge dominant narratives around chemsex, cruising, addiction, mental health and marginal identity
1: so people obviously focus on um, on the chems and the sex aspect of um of chem sex, of practice um, and obviously they're kind of like central to it you know what I mean like it's um you know it's not like one without the other but there's a whole other set of experiences I think that that, that go on um, at a chill out or between two people that are engaging in chem sex you know I would point to the centrality of um bareback gay porn um, it's uh, uh, you know as as the background atmosphere to the action. You know it's there to kind of you know um, create sort of um, living out sexual fantasy. Um, so we we see these like amazing guys doing you know really agile forms of sexual you know sexual acrobatics. And because of the drugs that you have, you have kind of the ability then to kind of perform uh, the same type of sex. Um, Jimmy Hakim, I'm sure you were Jimmy Hakim's work. Um, I, I was very influenced by, by uh, what, when he talked about um, inter, intimate uh, collectivity. Um, the notion that a lot of what happens at, at ChemSex Chill Out is not actually sex or drug use, it is those also, but um, it is that sort of kind of men sitting around naked together talking about things. Um, and sometimes those things can be like quite trivial. So a lot of the time it's like, which guys on Grindr going, oh, what are thinking? Oh, yeah, yeah, all of my team. We're talking about the, this guy's cock and, oh, I've treated this person, you know, and a lot of it's about that, but it's also storytelling as well. It's about, it's about engaging sort of, it does those narratives of, of a, a certain way of life. Um, but it can, depending on, on the participants, um, it can go to some really profound areas. Um, I, I've noticed a lot of the time, like um, people will talk kind of, quite freely and quite openly um, about, you know, sexual abuse, that they've uh, um, uh, endured or suffered in their life um, in a very sort of, uh, I'm not traumatized way of speaking about it. So it's that sort of thing that where you, if you go into counsel and your experience is oh, all trauma, you know this, but this is an ability. Crystal is is, is a perfect drug for this as well, because it, it allows you to kind of look at your experience of life in a sort of detached way, do you know what I mean? So you can see it, but it's not damaging you by, by seeing it at that point. And people are sort of sharing that as well. Um I think there's a there's a very interesting thing for me, and I think I kind of made it made it up into a into a theory one night, I am um, talking to some guys uh, chill out, um, as if it is actually a theory and true. I like sometimes inventing things just to see how they fly. But basically, I think there is a correlation between the development of like uh chemsex grinder and Uber. Um so it's that for me flying through the night kind of thing on the way to a new place and who will be there and what will be like. There's a sort of mm-hmm. sense of adventure and daring due to it. You know, um I think that like I mean I don't know if there's any research around this, but like you know, the the, the development of um, of ChemSec's Uber and Grinder in in sort of parallel. Um, because if you think about it like how is it like who who's going to be who's an Uber uh, driver going to make money off at Three o'clock on a Tuesday night in in a given city, like who's out and about then? It'll generally be some horny guy, gay guys, you know, heading across the city to to the next space. Um, I think there's a culture, like it, like I see I, I see chemsex as a subculture because it has its own kind of language. It has its own codes and systems, and you know symbols uh, and icons. And so you know, even like the, the way we use language, you know, we don't we don't say. Uh, needles we say pins you know they're not drugs they're chems you know it's like how you high and horny you know there's a whole kind of like raft of uh, like terms and phrases that are indicators you know that they're they're that your use of them is says that Oh yeah i'm i'm one of you too um, so there is that collective experience in, in, in that sense, the sense of you're part of something in a way, but not in the sense of when we talk about other kinds of subcultural movements, such as like punk or, you know, even like sort of queer art um, movements that, that exist like in London or Manchester, where there's a more conscious, I think, uh, realization of being part of something. With chemsex, it's much looser than that. There's not like a, there's not a, a, a sense of shared adventure so much. But I, I certainly think like COVID has really, really kind of exposed that in a way that, you know, the sudden loss of that ability to kind of be part of this very loose tribe. And it's very, very, very loose. Um, there are all, type, all, all types of groups of people who are all time, you know, engaging in chemsex that, you know, I don't participate in. Like, for instance, I call that the, the A gays. Um it's like um, it's all the kind of like you know, both sort of, you know, this usually why, um, you know, this desired gaze or whatnot. And I used like at this when I started engaging chemsex first, like um just under a decade ago, I, I went to a few of them, but then I found like there are the spaces where a lot of the, the sort of um you know socially undesirable kind of aspects of chemsex so that you know the the people who like overdosed going 100 in G a lot and you know, the, the non-consensual sex and all that kind of stuff seems to happen in those spaces. Um, also, I'm really kind of now E and RC. So like I do hold people to challenge people and hold people to account. So you're just like, yeah, obviously you get out. Um, I also, because of my job quite early, I kind of a few years back sort of like, okay, I'm a bit exposed here. So I tend to kind of have my, use my own space or go to chill out with guys I know and trust. Um, it's, it's, it's an attempt to sort of create a, a safer space in which to engage with what at, at the end of the day are quite powerful drugs and can be quite dangerous drugs. Um, uh, for, in, for instance, uh, I administer to each people because, and if they say, if I don't know them that well, and they go like, oh, I say, well, what, what, uh, what, what's your head? And If they go, oh, oh, I take it generally by like a meal, that's like, I'll give you one seven until I know that you can do mail, like that's what you're getting you know so it's so there is a sense I suppose in a very very loose sense of community um and I think there's just so many ways in which technology sort of play a role in this you know uh Grindr obviously has been the main route to kind of connecting and uh, with chemsex but how like uh, WhatsApp uh, groups kind of appear you know that are like bareback groups they're not essentially chemsex groups but they're they are really. Um, it's interesting that like a uh, cam stuff is starting to kind of come in or become a part of the culture. Uh, obviously it's a response to, to conditions of um, social distance and uh, COVID-19. Um, there's a lot of people, guys are now like performing for each other online. And I think that kind of re- replaces some, some I like, think there's, there's an aspect to chemsex that is the whole like exhibitionist hit that you get off it there's, there's something really 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 joyful as well about like being in a room with a bunch of other men naked that something really liberating about that um i i like i, I did a performance piece before and i was talking about how um i went to chill out and it was with four guys these guys i knew and used to chill out quite a lot together and uh, one of them was going to, to go to the shop to pick up something It was like oh what do you want and jokingly somebody said oh lollipops but he came back before lollipops first. So we were all sitting around like watching bareback gay porn, you know, looking at lollipops. Um, I was just like, this is such a really childlike and innocent things. <laughs> um, so there is, there's, I think, think there's, there's those aspects. There's a kind of like polyaddiction, because not all guys who, who do chem sex um, are, are addicted, but like sort of polysensory attraction. That's very, very hard to replace. and. I'm conscious as well that we really don't know what's happened on the ground fully in the last four months. My instinct is that chem, seg, uh, chem sex has reduced massively. And I know London friend did it, did a did it survey very early on. It was like, yeah, it seemed like practice was kind of like really, really kind of of course, like some people's reaction to that is oh yeah, but well, we can't be sure of the findings of that survey because loads of gay guys were probably lying about that. And it's like, well, why would you go on? a survey, you know, take the time to actively own a survey to distort its findings, do you know what I mean? It doesn't make any sense, like, it, but it's, it's yet yeah, again, like certain a certain type of queer man must be lying and must be untrustworthy because they engage in this sort of stuff, so they're probably a bit, you know. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of kind of mechanisms by which normative or homonormative culture attempts to sort of pathologize and stigmatize you without even, yeah, without even going into this sort of slamming and people going under aspect of things.
0: The subcultural aspect of chemsex is, at least linguistically, highly interesting. The field of LGBTQ plus linguistics, formerly referred to as lavender lexicons, explore the development of language within queer circles, language once necessitated by the taboo and stigmatised nature of being queer. A speech community is a community that shares linguistic traits, and tends to have community boundaries that coincide with social units. Speakers of a particular lexicon may resist culturally dominant language, and oppose cultural authority by maintaining their own varieties of speech. Being able to communicate your identity and create a sense of commonality, solidarity, and shared understanding through language, has been an imperative within queer circles throughout various periods of history across a multitude of geographies. But with assimilation being enabled through a decrease in stigmatization of queer identities in some cultures and communities, this need for exclusive language is being lost. No doubt in many ways, this is a valuable payoff with integration and assimilation comes various protections and privileges previously denied to queer peoples. However, there is still much to grieve in seeing languages and practices made obsolete. Chemsex, for all the taboo and stigma that endures surrounding this practice, appears an unlikely site of conservation. The language used here still acts as a screening process, allowing the inducted to engage and preventing access to outsiders. How do location and social class come into play with chemsex? So is this practice more common or popular in particular communities? And if so, what do you believe causes this?
1: Okay, so I suppose i will deal with location first. Yeah, like chemsex is different in different spaces. What I've noticed over the years in Manchester is that chemsex has become much kind of more fragmented and it's it's much smaller groups of guys more of it but in smaller groups at the start when i said to chill outs in manchester it was all like big big 10 20 guys there and that was the norm then but it seems here at least that's kind of then they still happen like and that like a lot of the gay sort of stuff are kind of yeah th- that still happens but a lot of what you find is um, is that it's it's much smaller groups of people, little networks of people, and then like new, new people are brought into that. The, the types of drugs people use is affected by location. So, for instance, ketamine is more popular at um, chill outs here in, Manche- in Manchester than it is in London. Here, particularly with the A gate end of things, crystal meth is, is a little bit frowned upon. So, like you know, um, MCAT and, and G are like the, the ones to go to's there, but kind of, oh, no, I wouldn't use crystal because that's all like really, you know, you're, that's really like fucked up, you know? Um, whereas in London that like, yeah, crystal is told, like was always part, totally part and parcel. Like, like it's, it's a given that yeah, that you use crystal, whether you slam or, or smoke or whatever. Um, and when you go into the sort of smaller cities then as well, there's differences as well. And like I have noticed in smaller cities that you like uh, Coke and MDMA, are are pretty common and um, also like in manchester i've never gone to a chill out where um there's been a cis woman there and um, i've gone to chill outs where you uh, say like trans woman, pre-op trans woman, um, and there's a lot of fetishization going on there i, I think there hasn't been enough an, an awful lot of work done on the experience of pre-op trans women uh um at chill outs and um, because sometimes it's sometimes very transactional and fetishized and um, but you would go say warrenton and you know, I, I haven't been to one of these chats, but I've heard of like, you know, where there's, that there's um, uh, like cis women, um, quite, often, quite often sex workers um, at chill outs. Um, and yeah, it, it, it does shift um, in location. In terms of social class, this is, I think, one, one of the things about chem sex that's for me most alluring and most interesting is that it, there, just, there isn't a social class that's more prevalent. Um, it is very 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 diverse in that in that sense ethnically um, in terms of economic background um, it's an age there's a really widespread of people who engage which for me is really like that's a really kind of uh, important aspect of the culture because if you go to a club in the city center it's going to, it, it is going to be dominated by um, cis white gay men and that's not the case with, 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 with chem sex. I don't think I'd be interested in it if it was just a bunch of white guys, like, you know, cis, middle-class white guys. It bore down my mind. And um, I want that kind of, you know, I want to find out about other people and their experiences. So I don't think in terms of um, of ethnicity, uh, social class, um, of age, um, even body type, it's, it's very, 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 very spread. Now, there are, I have noticed distinct similarities in a way between the type of people who engage in chemsex to a sort of extensive degree, and I mentioned I mentioned that uh, that piece chill that I wrote, and uh, just when we were talking earlier, the sort of prevalence um, of uh, guys who've um, suffered uh, sexual abuse or, or rape at some stage in their life. That seems to be uh, a constant um, or also, there's a lot of people I feel who in, in, engage, and this is not to sort of back up, um, you know, Matthew Todd and and uh, Dave Stewart sort of the 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 homophobic homophobia internal homophobia narrative because I don't believe that, and I don't I don't think that's that that's that's correct. But a lot of guys who have, in, in one way or another, at some stage in life, struggled with their sexual identity, or their gender identity. Um, and never really resolved it. Like, I suppose, um, to a satisfactory degree. And a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of guys uh, who do um, chem sex that are on the down low, you know, um, and this is, this is the requirement, this is how they get to participate, this is, this is how they get to engage in their sex, and they may be married to, you know, um, cis woman and whatnot. Like it's, that, that could, that's uh, also it's sort of how to get to know people almost everybody's using a false name and are, are telling you that what they do is not what they do, particularly because quite a few people from the, who work in the NHS engage in chem sex as well. And there is huge consequences then for, um, for yeah, to, uh, speaking a bit too freely about that, because of how the dominant narrative of, of chem sex, how it's, been, how, it, how it's been articulated, has been so pathologizing, so stigmatising that, the, the associations with it are, uh, are quite dark, you know, so I'm probably one of the few people working in these fields that is is like open about my use and my work is about my use and whatnot. But I still got that thing where like, I, I to somebody about, oh, you know, Kem Saxon, they're like, I'm easily think, oh, you must be like raping guys at the weekend and going under in G all the time. And it's, like, and it's like, you know, it's like, there are people who want to engage in this in a way that's like safe and enjoyable for everyone. And there are people who look out for each other as well. And yeah, I think it's it, that that's where things become tricky because, you know, and the notion that if you're doing chemsex, you have a problem. There's lots of people who don't have a problem, but if things start to get difficult for them, they're unlikely to approach organisations for help if that's how they feel they're going to be betrayed. And the imbalance as well is like when, because, you know, the organisation I work for is, does, has a chemsex sex support, um, you know, uh, programme. And I think it's a slow realisation among practitioners that, yeah, how it's been represented is a slightly askewed. because if you're working for an organisation that does chemsex support, you are likely to be here in the very, very worst of things. You're like somebody who's at the pretty much the end of their tether with this. You're not gonna hear all the sort of sweet and funny stories about like, you know, guys eating lollipops naked together. Do you know what I mean? Like that's probably not gonna come up. It's mostly do you know, Oh, I got really fucked up and did this fucked up thing, and you know. Um, so yeah, like that's that's the when you look at something solely through one lens and fix it that way, you're kind of uh, excluding a lot of other experiences, um, and then people don't feel represented in in how this is a how, how this is articulated, and then that kind of scares them off in a way. So it's interesting that the, that, that it, it is a subculture, but it's a subculture in which nobody wants to identify as being part of that subculture. Almost, I mean, it's very underground in that sense. Well, um, yeah, I, I think the, one of the most important things about, uh, about Camstacks a, as, a, as a culture, as a subculture, is its diversity. And I think, you know, it's, it's a response as well to sort of how homogenized queer spaces have become. I just have fucking boring, they've become right, you know? <laughs>
0: The homogeneity of queer spaces is a hot topic. In London's Nocturnal Queer Geographies, Campkin and Marshall address how, in the country's capital, a great number of LGBTQ venues are both owned by and seem to be largely catering to cisgender, white, able-bodied, middle-class men. These venues do present a homogenous sample of the queer community, a sample which is in many ways more palatable to a non-queer audience. When we consider the concept of the good gay versus the bad queer, we should think about how the values of a society, and by extension, a state, are reproduced through one's body. Is your appearance considered the whitewashed norm? Or is your existence politicized and thus considered radical and disruptive if you are a person of color? Are you able-bodied and thus considered normal? Or do you have a visible disability or additional needs? Do your desires and aspirations conform to capitalism? The difference between the good gay and the bad queer is often how much an individual is willing to atone for their gender or sexuality by performing and practicing that which is valued in a cisgender and heterosexual society. The good gay is excused for being gay, since it's deemed the only rebellious outlier in their personality. Ultimately. Cisgender, white, able-bodied, middle-class gay men are often considered less of a threat to the conservation of traditional social values than other queer individuals, but they cannot, and should not, be considered a fair representation of the queer community. I feel like in many ways you've already answered my third question, but are there any, I guess, are there any other misconceptions surrounding chemsex that you feel need to be dispelled
1: all of them um so <laughs> yeah i suppose perceptions um one thing on the location actually that's interesting that just came to me as well is that um when i started doing chems and uh, doing, doing chill outs years ago like every all, all the chill outs were in the city center of manchester and that's changed over, uh, over the years so salford's now like <clears throat> one of the the, the principal chemsex sort of um, chill out locations um, and Trafford and some of the other boroughs is starting to spread out. And um, you know, you'd wonder: is there a link then between property speculation um, and property prices going up in city centres? And you know, okay, guys, not having a the space and the money to afford space, um, and, and therefore sort of breeding out and breeding out to other parts of the country as well. Um, in terms of uh, misconceptions, I, I, I think like the main sort of medical. Um, understanding of it, I think, is, is obviously where, where I want to attack, you know. Um, this, I have somewhat of a problem with the sort of liberationist model as well. I, I think there's, there's a sense where it's, somebody is trying to um, represent chemsex as this sort of, you know, um, non-conformist, uh, sort of anti-statist, anti, anti, you know, consciously political thing now i've never been witness to 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 a conscious political articulation of sort of like manifestly against uh, the homogenization and uh, all of of lgbt or queer space i i don't identify it as lgbt know um yeah i, I think it's there, there is a politics to it but it's politics very very you know small p and it isn't uh kind of um a sort of resistance movement, um, against, you know, heteronormativity. Uh, those those things can be expressed by people engaging in chem sex. But I, I think almost as well, the liberation model, model, he sort of isn't comfortable with then talking about some of the things that, that, uh, that, you know, the medical model, right, the stigmatized mythology and the things, um, sort of reinforces. Like, I mean, I, I did a performance, um, at an ACT UP event in London and, um, parts of forms that was like naked in a paddling pool with with, with a co-performer and like sex toys and drug paraphernalia and condoms live everywhere but I was basically talking about like you know HIV and addiction and um, and it it, it was that thing that like you know look I'm not saying like I have had you know like every SDI under the sun I've been raped at a chill out you know I've had psychosis and it's shit you know I'm clearly an addict However, I in still I, I like I still enjoy this. Like I'm not an idiot. I wouldn't do it if it was all bad. Like, like I, there are problems, of course. But what we in, in our culture we're, we're, we've got a very infantile way of looking at substances and and and, misuse and addiction. Like it's um, it's like yeah, uh, there's a, this sort a of hierarchy of, of, of drugs. So you can go into work, for example, and say, oh, I was out in piss last night. I'm really hungover. And we go, oh yeah, oh yeah. And I, like you're gonna go, oh, I was slamming all last night. or oh, wax up a I got a bit of sleep, so it's on fine, like you know, and then like you'd likely get a disciplinary for that. And so, well, why? What's the difference between the two? Um, actually I hangover, I'm awful. I feel fucking off. I can be for six days and will get a of sleep, i fine, you know, I'm a bit tired, obviously. I think that there's a problem there with with a society that's that that looks at the addict and and, and basically sort of you know um, it turns them into a pathological being that is sort is in need of our care and help, you know, and has no agency. Despite like kind of harm reduction practices becoming kind of more prevalent, there is still sort of abstinence. The notion that like if you're not if you don't not desiring abstinence at some stage, you do, you do something wrong. Um, but if you like, you know, you you do the abstinence thing, like you know, you go through the fucking pain of it, you know, the sort of the thing that, that's keeping you alive and keeping you sane, being taken out of your life, the sort of, you know, lack of um, self-belief, you know, the relapse, repeat. Uh, and what do you get back in return? An entire, um, like, society is built around, you know, alcohol. And, you know, you can't get a coffee after, like, six o'clock in the evening. Um, you know, it's all it's all about sex and drugs and alcohol. And, you know, it's so... What, what does the, the addict get back in return for those attempts to be absolute? I'm like, why should they be absolutely? If, if, if So I, I, I'm i an addict, I fully accept that and embrace it almost as, a, as an identity. But like, I'm not out uh, robbing off your granny, like, you know, I, I'm paying for my own cams. And, you know, um, whatever happens to my body, if I hit psychosis, why that's for me to do with. I'm not like, you know, it's burden on the state, you know. It's like, it's, what business of yours if I'm an addict? Like, what, what's wrong with that? Like, I don't see anything to be ashamed of at all. Um, so I think there's something, for me, in, in my work, there's something about um, the power of claiming something, um, of saying, you know, directly, something, yeah, I, mean, I do this. What? Well, what do you want to say? Oh, but all these bad things that happen, yeah, it sure, should happen to me, you know. Um, you haven't asked me about, like, the, the reasons why I would still do it that are joyous and... You know immersive and engaging so with my work i'm kind of tr- using kind storytelling as, as a means of doing that and like not attempting to kind of shirk off the the issues like address them but address them to like use use chem sex um i suppose it was. i it was interested at that point you know i thought what what's the purpose of of finding subjects to talk about something when I do the thing I want to talk about. So use my own body as a vessel to talk about to do the whole myriad of, of really, really interesting things that chemsex um, kind of um, shines a light on. And I think addiction is something that we need to start talking about in a different way. And I think chemsex is an, like, an interesting vehicle in which to do so. Because of the sort of poly addictive, polysensory things that are going on, I think there's there's, some, there's something there. So I'm kind of you know playing around with how I kind of then approach that sort of as a, as a topic but yeah I I don't don't know if that's fully answered what
0: I mean yeah no I think it has Um, thank you so much Dr Baxter's perspective on this culture is inextricable from his standpoint personal investments and experiences I was grateful for his insight and how he demonstrated the complexity of this subject through both his experiences as a man who has sex with other men and as an addict If anything is evident from Sebastian's testimonial, it is that chemsex practices will persist regardless of attitudes towards drugs and queer culture. I don't want to use this platform to endorse chemsex, I want to make that clear, but throughout the history of policy development for sex education and drug education, one thing has been clear, that abstinence-focused education is ineffective. We cannot prevent people from making decisions which could potentially adversely impact their mental or physical health, but we can provide resources and services for those who do, or are trying to avoid doing so. It is both patronising and infantilising to treat queer individuals and others who engage in chemsex as if their behaviour needs to be regulated by others for their own good. Drug addiction is a serious issue and debilitating for many people, But that doesn't warrant demonization or the stripping of one's agency. It requires education, open dialogues, signposting to relevant services, and a transformative approach to how we address the subjects of drug use and sexuality. It is far more difficult to unlearn practices and habits when we fear judgment for having fostered them in the first place. In conjuring an example of queer culture, few of us will think first of chemsex, But this community exists, and is perhaps not as two-dimensional as one might perceive it to be from the outside. Academically, particularly anthropologically, the practice is fascinating. But a pragmatic and impersonal approach to this subject overlooks the very human complexities present. The dangerous, the erotic, the joyful and the painful components interwoven throughout stories about chemsex. Chemsex is and will likely remain an integral part of queer culture in the United Kingdom and beyond. And I believe what will come to define our culture's approach to this practice is our willingness to educate one another and support one another, regardless of our personal choices. This episode of the Slash Queer podcast was edited by Sam Clay, transcribed by Bronya Smith, and scripted and produced by me, Georgie Williams. A very special thanks to Dr. Sebastian Baxter for his contributions to this episode. If you are interested in learning more about the subject of chemsex, you can find a list of relevant UK organisations on the LGBTQ plus resources section of the Slash Queer website. Thanks once again to my Patreon subscribers, who ensure that this stone-cold broke queer can afford a coffee between interviews for this podcast. If you're not a Patreon, and you want to help this podcast continue to grow, you can find the Slash Queer Patreon at patreon.com forward slash slash queer. That's S-L-A-S-H queer. The link is also available on our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter pages. This podcast is growing in reach and popularity with every episode, so even if you can't contribute financially, giving us a share or just subscribing makes a world of difference. We still have merch available and are taking donations via Coffee. You can find the links to both in the description for this episode. I'd also like to take this opportunity to thank all of you who responded to our call for volunteers across our social media platforms. So a warm welcome is in order for June, Lindsay, and Bronya, who are donating their time as translators and transcribers. This episode was recorded on location in London in the United Kingdom. Music in this episode was composed by Kevin MacLeod. If you enjoyed this episode or have any feedback, please get in touch on Instagram or Twitter at, at slash queer or email us at slash queer at outlook as is our mantra, stay kind, stay radical, and stay queer.